1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. So if you can stand, please do, in honor of God's Word. It says there, Paul writes to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and flee from reproach and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Today's outline is very basic. It's right there in your, in your uh, uh, folder. And um, I want you to consider four actions that God calls us to address. Um, the idea here is that we're climbing out of our spiritual slump, but we're also climbing into our spiritual service. We realize that as Christians, we're called to minister on behalf of Christ, not just pastors, not just elders. Every Christian is given spiritual gifts. And those gifts are given not for you to hoard, not for you to take home and pack away in your closet, but to use for his glory. And I praise God that we're in a church, it may be a small church, but I praise God that a vast majority of our people who come to our church and fellowship here are involved in some sort of ministry. Many of you are involved in many ministries. You're spreading yourself maybe too thin, and we have to watch that as well. But it's, it's a blessing to be part of a church where people understand that they're called to serve their Savior. And he kind of gives us four imperative commands here. Paul does. He's giving Timothy. I mean, if we want to take it strictly in the context of these verses, he's talking to Timothy, who is answering the call of God on his life into ministry. It was his disciple. He was a young pastor. And so, you know, it it applies directly to Timothy, but indirectly it applies to every believer. Because I don't believe that God just calls pastors into ministry or elders into ministry, that every Christian has a calling upon their life to serve God to some extent. He doesn't call us, he doesn't save us to be spectators in his church. That's not what he calls us to do. And in the vast majority of churches today, that's exactly what people do. They come on Sunday, they sit there, they open their Bible, they listen, and then they leave. And then they come back the next week, and they repeat. (laughs) And they don't do anything during the week for anyone or anything. And so it's, it's a blessing to be part of a church where, you know what, people do come out on Wednesday nights to study the Word of God. Not because they're going to find some brand new truth, but because they're opening their hearts and their lives to the teaching of God's Word that we're called to do. And so it doesn't just happen on Sundays, it happens throughout the week. And Paul addresses Timothy here, as you see at the very beginning there, he says, as for you, O man of God, and then he gives him four commands to fulfill as such. So... I would argue that by application, these commands apply to all of us, not just those in spiritual leadership, because we're all called to serve the church. 
But you notice here, it's kind of an abrupt start to this, this text in verse 11. He opens this famous charge to Timothy with those words, As for you, O man of God. Now, what has he just got done doing? If you read through the book of 1 Timothy, you realize that he just got done uh, kind of ranting about the false teachers of Ephesus. He was talking about their corrupt doctrine. He was talking about their immoral lifestyles. But now he instructs someone who is a man of God, Paul's understudy, Timothy, how he should live. And I think by application, this applies to all of us. And the title, Man of God, was intentionally motivating because it was customarily designated for great leaders in the nation of Israel. When you you read about the man of God in the Old Testament, people like Moses were called the man of God. People like David or Samuel, Elijah, Elisha. The man of God title just basically says it's someone who is in God's service. They're called to serve their Lord and Savior. And when they speak, they represent God. They speak in God's name. Now, I pray that when you go out and you share with your friends or you witness to your relatives, that you're speaking in God's name. You're not speaking in your own name. That's why it's so important if you're creating a testimony, if you're coming up with your testimony, that you incorporate within your testimony, your personal testimony, sections of Scripture. That you can tell people that, well, you know, in the Bible, in Romans you know, 3.23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where the power is. The power is not in your words. The power is in the word of God. And so that's why we focus so much on the teaching and the preaching of the word of God here. And so that title, Man of God, speaks of someone who's in God's service. And when Paul addresses Timothy emphatically here, but as for you, O man of God, guess what? Timothy's ears just lit up. Wow, Paul's addressing me as a man of God? He got Timothy's attention. The young disciple knew heavy instructions were about to come out of Paul's mouth. And see, in those instructions, those injunctions that Paul gave Timothy still remain standard for all who serve the Lord today within the church. I mean, it's a simple title, man of God, yet it's very rich. And so Paul addresses Timothy as this man of God. And the primary emphasis here is on one who is called to ministry, I believe. But by application, we can all apply this to our own lives, and it's important to consider these four things that Paul points out to us because this will help us confirm our own spiritual calling. It will help us confirm our own spiritual service. How are we serving Christ? Where are we serving Christ? And throughout the book of of 1 Timothy, Paul mentions over and over these false teachers in his day. And the apostle follows this charge to Timothy. And he was God's man at that time there. Well, there's four things here that Paul points out for Timothy, and we'll just zip through these hopefully quickly. The first one there is in verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, what's he say? 
He says, flee what? These things. Flee these things. All these commands are, are, are commands that are ongoing. It's not a command that just is given for a certain amount of time. In the original language, it means it's, it's repetitive. It, you, you continually flee these things. The man of God realizes that there are certain things to be avoided in life. And that, that Greek word is the same word we get the English word fugitive from. And so it really means God's man is a man who flees. He's a fugitive. Well, what does he flee? Well, I'm not going to read all these verses here that are listed in your outline. You can read them on your own later. But first of all, we're called to flee false teachings. False teachings. See, so many times today in the, in the church, Christians are embracing false teachers. They're embracing them. Well, it's okay. You know, it's, it's not that important. Well, I believe it is. And I'm not here saying that our church is the only church that's right on the, on the block or anything. I would never say that. But what I would say is that, you know what? If you ever hear something from this pulpit that you see is direct, in direct uh, opposition or contrary to the Word of God, it, it is upon you to come and you speak to the teacher, whether it's me or Ken or anybody else for that matter. And you tell them, hey, wait a minute. You know, you said this. Where, chapter verse. <laughs> That's all you have to say. Chapter verse. Where do you find that in the scriptures? See, and if they can't tell you, then they either have to say, well, that was my opinion, which is fine. Sometimes opinions are fine. But mostly we should be teaching the sound teachings from the Word of God. And today we have churches that embrace erroneous teaching. Um, and that's what what this whole thing is, he says, but as for you, O man of God, in opposition to these false teachers, what are they? They're, they they are, are, are men who chase after money. You chase after God. They are men who chase after sin. You chase after righteousness. They are men who chase after the world and its system. You, Timothy, chase after heaven. For God's glory. And so he says here, you have to flee false teachings. You also have to flee, he points this out in the, in the verses here, in verses 9 to 10, right before our text, the love of money. There's nothing wrong with having money. It's the love of money that will take you down quick. See, that's so important to understand. And that really comes out of the life of a lot of these false teachers. There's a lot of false teachers in the world today who are making a ton of money off the church because people don't have the common sense nor the wisdom to say, wait a minute, why would I give this person a dime for his new Learjet or his gold-plated sink because he feels that he's entitled to it? See, I mean, we have to stop and we have to practice some godly wisdom when we give our offerings when we, we give back to the Lord. And so he says there, 
flee these things. And directly, it's talking about false teachers, talking about the love of money. But as listed there, there's other things that we're told to flee in scriptures. First Corinthians, it says that we should flee sexual sin. Has no place in the place of a believer. First Corinthians 10, Paul says that we should flee idolatry. And that doesn't necessarily mean a little statue you bow down to in your living room. You know, sometimes good things can be idols too. Your job can be an idol. I'll go one even further. Your spouse can be an idol. You have to be careful. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing should come between you and your Lord and Savior. I remember before we got married, I told my wife, I said, look, I want to marry you, but I want you to understand one thing. I will never love you more than my Savior. Not a real good way to start off a, <laughs> an engagement. But you know what? She said the same thing back to me. It was good. And, you know, when you have that kind of mentality, boy, God can use you in, in, in a myriad of ways because nothing's standing in the way. Our children can become our idols. We have to be careful. And then the last thing there of the five things we're told to flee is youthful lusts in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're told to flee youth, youthful lusts. So we're a people who live in this world, but we're fleeing. We're running from things constantly. We're running from the world. And what's the world doing? It's calling us, calling us. Oh, come on. Follow, follow, follow this world system. Follow the culture. Make that most important. Don't you want to be relevant? Don't you want to relate to the culture? Frankly, no, I don't. Because this culture will change and this culture will pass. But the Bible says the word of God will never change. It will never pass. So we flee from those things. And then he says, the, rate, the next verse there, he says, pursue or follow after. Follow after, first of all, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So you have this kind of a, a dual set of commands here. On one hand, Paul's telling Timothy, you know what? You need to run away from some stuff. But on the other hand, you better be running towards something. There's a lot of believers, when they first become a Christian, they're told, to give you, somebody gives them a list. Don't do this anymore. Don't do this. Don't do that. And so they're, they're running from all these things. But you know what? No, nobody's ever stopped and told them what they should be running toward. <laughs> And so they're really frustrated in their newfound life in Christ. They're trying to do all this, keep this list of do's and don'ts. And they don't realize that, wait, you can't do this on your own. You need to be running toward the Savior. What do we follow after? We follow after what is good. A man of God not only flees from the love of money, but he runs towards spiritual virtue. He flees from sin but he continually pursues some form of holiness in his life. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We're not. If you ever find a Christian that says, oh, I'm perfect. I don't deal with sin. And trust me, they're out there. There are some believers that have been taught that you can reach a certain spiritual plateau and sin is not affected in your life anymore. That's a lie. 
but they believe it. So he says, flee these things, but run to, first word there is, is righteousness. And it's kind of, I put them in little sections of two there, because they're kind of coupled together. First of all, he says, pursue, that means to strive after with intensity. It doesn't mean kind of having a, you know, an attitude of, well, I don't know, if, do I want to go over there or not? You know, it's, it's the kind of pursuing, it's the kind of following after. The idea is kind of like, while you're standing on the side of the freeway and you see your little three-year-old run out in the freeway, what are you going to do? You're going to intensely pursue that child to retrieve him from being harmed. You're not going to sit there and go, eh, I wonder if he'll make it across. You know, you're not going to do that. There's going to be some, you know, intensity to your action. That's what he's saying here. And he says the first thing we should pursue is righteousness. In other words, we should be trying to do what's right between God and us and between our fellow man. It applies to both. The righteousness Paul describes here is not Christ's righteousness that's given to us at salvation. That's not what he's speaking about. But he's talking about the aspect of sanctification. He's talking about holiness in our life. He's talking about the Christian that knows the right thing to do, and then, you know what, they actually do it. That's righteousness. That's what he's talking about here. And kind of the internal component of righteousness is what? He says godliness. Godliness. Righteousness looks toward our outward behavior. But godliness looks toward our inward attitude, our inward motivation. And right behavior flows from right motives. So he says here that we should not only have righteousness, but we should have God-likeness as a way to, to say that, that word. Godly people offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. Hebrews twelve twenty eight tells us knowing that one day we'll receive the praise from him for our work. Well done, good and faithful servant. The two virtues here are central to any godly person's power and youthfulness. Spurgeon referred to this as a minister's self-watch. Like we talked about in communion, before we had communion, we said this is a time where we examine our own hearts. Well, when you're serving God, you need to be really examining your hearts. It doesn't matter whether you're helping in the kitchen. It doesn't matter whether you're cleaning up during the week, helping in Sunday school, preaching a sermon, helping in the nursery. It doesn't matter. What is the attitude of your heart when you're doing those things? Are you checking it? Richard Baxter said this. He warned, many a tailor goes in rags that maketh costly clothes for others. And many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he has dressed for others the most costly dishes. See, it's important for us to be reminded, to be on guard for ourselves. We have to know what our sinful proclivities are, what, what we're tempted by, so that we can avoid them. 
to the Corinthians. He wrote in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote this in chapter 9, verses 24 and 27. He says, do you not, all, do you not know that all run, all who run in a race run, but one receives the prize? See, that flies in the face of our modern-day culture where everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> Paul says, that's not true. That's not true. He says, run in such a way that you may win, and everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it as Christians to receive something that's imperishable. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. You never want to be in that place, trust me. You never want to be in the place, and we've all been there probably more than likely in our Christian lives, where we've preached to others, we've told somebody some advice, and then, wow, we find ourselves in the same situation. We're not even following our own advice. John Flavel, a Puritan, wrote this, Brethren, it is easier to disclaim against a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. See, we're always looking at the other guy. John Owen put it this way, A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what the minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty that he is and no more. See, that's so important that we remind ourselves of that. And then he also says here, faith and love. We have to have faith. Faith is basically, to summarize it quickly, is just confidence, having confidence, having trust in God on a daily basis. That's what faith is. When you came in and you sat down on that chair, I didn't see any of you test the chair out and you know, put your weight on it first before you, you just plop down. Why? Because you had faith that that chair would hold you up. That's that confident trust. And that's what we have to have. Faith is the atmosphere in which the man of God exists. Without faith, what does the Bible say? It's what? It's impossible to what? Please God, right? Whatever is not of faith is sin, it says. And so, the man, the woman of God, trusts God to keep and to fulfill his word. And then he mentions the word agape, love. It's a love of volition. It's a love of choice. It's not a love that says you have to. It's unrestricted. It's unrestrained. It's a kind of love for God, for other believers. And by the way, even for non-Christians. Seems like the church forgets that third category sometimes. We're called to love non believers. We don't have to endorse how they live, but they should definitely hear and see the love of God in us towards them. Matthew 22. The Lord himself says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is that you should what? 
Love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you love yourself? You probably love yourself a lot more than your neighbor. I mean, you're God's creation. You should love yourself. You should take care of yourself. We're not to walk around with a heap of ashes on our head. Woe is me. We're children of the Most High God, called to serve Him, called to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ in a lost and dying world, trusting for Him to use us for His glory. Well, then he says, not only follow after righteousness and godliness and faith and love, but he says, steadfastness, steadfastness. It means to remain under. Some translations translate this word perseverance. It's not a passive kind of a thing. It's not a fatalistic resignation. Well, I know God's in control, so whatever. Why pray about anything? That's not a biblical attitude to have as a believer. This is referring to a, an attitude of victory, uh, an ad, 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 attitude of, of, of triumphant, unwavering loyalty to the Lord in the midst of the trials you're going through. That's what James tells us. It's the steadfastness of a martyr who will lay down his life, if necessary, for the cause of Christ. See, this kind of steadfastness allows believers to stick to their spiritual calling, to stick to to their spiritual service. It allows believers, no matter what, to carry out what God has called them to do. Well, then the last thing he mentions here is gentleness. Gentleness, basically the word The understanding of the word is kindness or a meekness. This particular word only appears here in the New Testament. It's kind of interesting. See, you may be consumed with a lot of different causes, but the man of God, the woman of God, recognizes that they make no contribution to their success. And they're marked by that kind of humility. Um, John Bunyan put it this way in Pilgrim's Progress. He says, he that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. He that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. We need to be reminded that we need to follow after that which is good. And the third thing here, Paul points out for Timothy in verse 12. He says, not only do we need to flee some things, not only do we have to follow after some things, but you know what? Especially in this world, we need to fight for some things. We don't need to be some mealy-mouthed Christian that's afraid to speak up because, oh, maybe it's politically incorrect. What would my office manager think? If I brought my Bible to work, or if I prayed before my meal at the luncheon. See, we need to be able to fight for the truth, because that's exactly what it is. That's what he says. He says, fight the what? The good fight of the faith. It's not the good fight of faith. It's the good fight of the faith. 
When you're a spokesman for Christ, when you're a spokesman for God, you're called into spiritual warfare. That's what it is. Is you're constantly battling against the flesh. You're constantly battling against your own personality. You're constantly battling against the devil. You're constantly battling against the resistance of the fallen world that won't even listen to you. Because they love sin and error, and they hate truth and holiness. And as believers, we're intimidated by that. We're afraid of that. I would say it's also a battle against lethargic Christians in apathetic churches. I see this all the time. See, Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. He says, you know what? Suffer hardship with me. This isn't a walk in the park. This isn't for the weak-hearted. The Christian life isn't something that's, you know, for the meek and the, the, the mealy mouse people that want to make it all just pathetic. No, if you're going to be a Christian in today's world especially, you know what? It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be called out. And if you're saying you're a Christian and you're living in this world and you're living for Christ and you're saying, well, I never hear anything from anybody. Nobody ever gives me any problems. You might want to check your life. (laughs) What are you really living? Are you conforming to the world? Because if you are, you're not going to hear anything. That's exactly what the devil wants you to do. But if you've been transformed by Christ and he's given you a new heart and he's given you an understanding of his truth and his word and he's given you a command to go out and proclaim that truth and you do it, you actually have the guts to do what God has called you to do, guess what? People are not going to embrace you. They're not going to say, oh, great message, tell me more. They're not going to do that. They're going to say, whoa, where do, what planet do you come from? That's not right. You can't tell people that they're sinners. It's a lifestyle. It's not sin. And besides, you know, I understand the guy's cheating on his wife, but, you know, have you seen his wife? Have you ever met her? I mean, they make up excuses for everything. And when you call them out on it, wow, that's, you know, you become the enemy real quick. That's hardship. That's what we're called to face. And that's what Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, at the end of his life, I pray that this will be the case in every one of our lives. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have fought it. And I have finished the course. You know what? I didn't cheat. I didn't take a shortcut. And he says, I have kept the faith. I mean, unfortunately, so many believers today in the church don't even realize that there's a battle going on, let alone the fact that they're in it. They don't even understand that. They just want to go to their nice little warm church and sing their nice little cozy songs and hear some message that strokes their ego and sends them out the door only to do the same thing week after week after week. And they feel good about themselves because they put a check in the, in the offering. 
Some Christians just seek positions for ease, for comfort. It's, it's like going AWOL in the spiritual battle. See, Paul was under no delusion here. He knew these people existed. He told his believers, the believers at Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, in Acts 14, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's tough. It's hard. 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we read that and we say, well, that must mean like a foreign country or something. That's because nobody here is living for Christ in this world, in our country. Everyone's compromising. And when you don't compromise, guess what? You feel the persecution. Our Lord warned us in Matthew 10, 38, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I mean, why don't we hear these Verses more often. What do we hear? We hear, well, God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. I mean, that word fight is the word we get agonized from. It's not a little, you know, pitter-patter on the cheek kind of a thing. I mean, this is an all-out brawl. This is a fight. It was used in military and athletic contexts to describe the, the concentrated discipline needed to be part of those situations. It needed conviction. You had to have an effort to win. It wasn't going to be handed to you. Not everybody got a trophy. And it's a present imperative here. It means it's a continuous battle. This is a battle that never ends here on this side of glory. Do you understand that? And either you're in the battle and you're engaged in the battle or you're, 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 you're opting out. You're sitting on the sidelines. It refers to the spiritual conflict with Satan's kingdom. And as a man and woman of God, we have to play our part. Well, what is the faith he speaks of here? Faith refers to Christian truth. It refers to the very word of God. That's what it's talking about. The faith. In Jude 3, it says, The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. See, it's that faith, that, that, that supreme truth, that we can fight for knowing we're on the right side. We don't have to apologize. I'm not saying we go out and be jerks about it. Don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, we don't need to compromise. We need to be willing to stand up to this world system and culture and speak truth into people's hearing so that they too can be transformed by the power of God. Well, the last thing here quickly, not only flee from, follow after, and fight for, but also we're called to be faithful to some things, mainly the Word of God. 
You say, that sounds like what you just said. Well, he says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God. Listen to his words here. He's talking to this young pastor, Timothy, his disciple. And he doesn't say, you know, I charge you in my presence. He says, no, I charge you in whose presence? The presence of God. That's who we're accountable to as Christians. And by the way, it's God who gives life to all things, he says. And not just God, but his son, Christ Jesus. What does he charge us to do? He says to keep the commandment. To keep the commandment. The word there, to keep the commandment, has the idea of guarding it, protecting it, proclaiming it. When's the last time you left here and proclaimed the gospel to someone? Unapologetically, with love, but unapologetically proclaimed the gospel. Proclaimed the word of God. It's God who gives life to all things anyway. I mean, who are we trying to impress? So these four things are very elementary probably read this verse a million times. But you know what? It really helps us gain perspective, gain vision into what are we doing for Christ that's going to last? What are we doing for Christ that matters? Are we serving him? Do we understand what our spiritual calling is? Do we understand what our gifts are? We understand what our priorities should be. I mean, this is applicable for all believers. I mean, James 3.1 does say, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. But the Bible also says in Luke 12 from Everyone who has been given much shall much be required. I challenge you this week to sit down and make a list of what God has given to you. How God has blessed you. And then make another list. Well, how am I returning the favor to God? What am I doing for God that's going to last into all eternity? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement to our hearts that as 2020 uh, is now, I mean, we're living in it right now. Father, we pray that as a church, as individuals within this church, that we would gain perspective on our lives, on our Christian lives, on our Christian service. Lord, that we wouldn't be complaining about what we do for you, but Lord, we would do it with joy in our hearts. Father, that we would do it in a way that is honoring to you. Because we know that you don't need us. (laughs) You don't need anybody. You're God. Nobody in this building right now is irreplaceable. We can all be replaced in a second by someone else who's probably more gifted and more apt to serve you with better attitudes. But Lord, for right now, you, you have us where we're at. And we're called to serve you with all of our heart. And maybe that service is active involvement in ministry. Maybe that service is spending time on your knees in prayer for those that are serving. But whatever the case, we're called to be involved in this fight. 
And so, Lord, we pray that as we embrace this new year, that you would give us an eagerness in our heart to serve you, to grow in our relationship to you. Help us not to become complacent. And maybe there's some here who's still searching. (laughs) They're still on that, that spiritual search, that spiritual journey. That's okay. But just realize that, that sooner or later, if you've heard the truth, you're going to be held accountable. And so it's really contingent upon you to turn to God for his assistance, to ask him for help in sorting out whatever questions you may have knowing that he is gracious, that he's kind, he's loving. He desires to know you in a personal way through his Savior, through his Son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that he will change you, he will transform you when you cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. And you too can be part of the body of Christ, having your sins forgiven for all eternity. And Lord, we pray for us as believers that we wouldn't grow complacent, that we would be willing to serve you no matter what. Make us bold in our witness for you each and every day. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Let's